Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. In response to the Panama Papers scandal, the EU agreed to regulations mandating the publication of beneficial ownership registers. It should follow then that the more access to information about individuals and corporate identities, the more easy it is for financial and related entities to assist with legitimate businesses. Daniel Wagar argues that increased transparency would also help improve trust in financial services something that is critical to an industry which relies on public confidence for its social license to operate. So I asked Daniel to the program to discuss. Daniel is the Vice President of Financial Crime Compliance at LexisNexis Risk Solutions and is an experienced financial crime compliance and investigations executive with extensive experience in developing and running programs designed to prevent detect and report money laundering, sanctions violations, arms proliferation, and other crimes. In his current position, he assists regulated and non-regulated entities in avoiding legal, regulatory, and reputational risk while protecting the global financial system from illicit fund flows. Thank you so much, Daniel, for being on the show today. Thank you, Kelly. Glad to be here. So give our, our listeners a little bit of context to start. I think that the you know, we just recently had the the Pandora Papers, so I think people might have forgotten a little bit about the Panama Papers. So, can you kind of give us context for what is leading up to this clamor for more transparency? Yeah, thanks, Kelly. The Pandora Papers and other revelations in the interim between the Panama Papers and now are part of a pattern of of leaks or exposés that that bring to light or lend transparency into a space where they're often is not. And, and your listener base involving people who are interested in tax matters and, and, and financial matters probably knows well that uh, offshore jurisdictions, offshore havens, non-transparent entities are used for lawful purposes and also unlawful purposes. It's the sensational aspect to the unlawful that really causes people to pay attention and, and, and listen up. Sure. I think that actually is maybe what was behind the ICIJ making this so public, right? Like, I, I do think that there is the sensational element that sheds a light on this is happening. And obviously, we know that this goes on. I mean, I, I don't think that any of my listeners doubt for a second that there are companies and individuals who are using tax havens and, and other mechanisms to achieve results that may be illicit. But I think that, you know, it's easy for that to kind of get lost. And when you look at the dollars involved, though, it really is sensational. So I think that that's why every now and again, every few years, we pay attention. It's true. You know, it's also the type of people involved, right? When you think about illicit versus licit, if you think about it from a financial perspective, many of these entities are created in order to have non-transparency. That does not necessarily, again, that doesn't equate to illicit or unlawful, right? It might be for tax advantage. It could be for tax avoidance. And occasionally it could be for tax evasion and then other illicit activities. But lots of folks are seeking privacy. They're seeking to shelter wealth. But when you look at these releases, one thing that stands out is 
the tremendous number of political figures. And in financial crime circles, you often hear, hear them referred to as politically exposed persons. And it's the involvement of those significant political figures that is often the, the focus of the reporting, as it was with the Panama Papers, right up until most recently with the Paradise and Pandora Papers and others. Those politicians, are, are it's truly amazing when you see the wealth and holdings they have. Right. And I think that's a really interesting point, because one of the things that I think is can be confusing for taxpayers is that every time this happens, every time we see papers on them, I've written articles about this. You you make, you know, there's a distinction between just because somebody has an account in the Caymans doesn't mean that they're doing something wrong, right? Just because somebody has a South Dakota trust doesn't mean that they're doing something wrong. Um, I think that when you talk about privacy, we're sometimes willing to grant some grace to someone like a Bezos, who I'm not suggesting was involved, but, you know, a, a very wealthy person that we would not allow for politicians. You know, I don't know why that is um, necessarily, but I do think sometimes it's easy to conflate the idea that there must be, they must be doing something wrong if their name appears on this kind of list. Whereas I don't think we necessarily assume the same thing about all wealthy people. I think sometimes maybe we we regard politicians with a different level of maybe a different kind of a, a I don't know the word I'm looking for, but lens, we just a different of, lens, right? Yes, a thank different filter, you. Yeah. Right? I mean, I don't know that that's fair. I do understand that if you're in a nation that is struggling, like some of the developing nations, and you see, you know, your president's name on the list, that you're going to wonder why that is. That I completely understand. But it is interesting that I've covered uh, both Pandora and Panama Papers. And almost always, the, the things that we talk about most are the politicians. Right. Well, it's actually, Kelly, it's a great observation because um, there is a, a good reason, a valid reason, and even a fair reason to look at politicians and wealthy individuals differently. Mm-hmm. It is actually the wealth and the source of wealth that is most important to determine whether there are potentially illicit or unlawful activities afoot. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. In 2000, I was I became when I was still a federal agent. I actually participated in a corruption investigation involving the mayor of Waterbury, Connecticut. One of the things that had raised attention was that this individual with a sub six figure public salary and no other uh, significant means of income suddenly started wearing five thousand dollar suits. Mm-hmm. from a known soup maker in New York and started riding in limos to Giants games and other things. It turned out that he was being bribed by an organized crime figure and later convicted of related offenses and other ones, which were quite sensational. But the point there is that if you have a wealthy individual who owns a, a global company and you know he has billions of dollars, him placing a million dollars in an offshore entity it, uh, does not raise the red flags that it would for a individual who is the mayor of a of the fifth largest city in Connecticut and whose right. salary and means are known, right? So it is that transparency into the source of funds and the source of wealth that helps to determine whether it's in fact suspicious or not. And that should be guarded carefully, right? It should be held in, in strictest confidence and privacy by the institutions, by the government and others. It's not for public consumption, but there's definitely a reason to look at someone who has significant means from known sources versus does not have them and still has wealth offshore. So that actually raises, I think, a lot of interesting questions about transparency. So when we talk about wealthy persons or politicians, and then we talk about these new regulations regarding the beneficial ownership, how much transparency do you think is a good thing? 
And kind of related to that, do you think that there should be maybe two sets of rules or should it be the same set of rules for every person? That's a great question. The, you know, transparency in this has two key angles that I, that I could point to. One is transparency about structures, corporations, entities created in tax haven jurisdictions or corporate non-transparency jurisdictions domestically and abroad. And then there is transparency into what I was talking about a minute ago, which is the source of wealth and source mm-hmm. of funds. And together, they provide a really good picture of where someone's holdings are. Is there potentially illicit activity underway? But here's the thing. Some of those things should be available to the public, but only some. Okay. Right? I mean, the public doesn't have a right to know the details of someone's private finances if they're licit, if they're legal, if they're lawful. Now, if you're a public servant and you can't explain how $40 million got in your bank account, <laughs> there's definitely a public interest. Sure, in, sure. Right? By the same token, you have to decide where's the public line in registries. And look at the UK, right? They've had company accounts for years now. And that is a registry where individuals, natural persons associated with entities are publicly registered. So there's a public an interest there. But the thing is, going upward from there in corporate ownership or beneficial ownership, you don't have that same right in all jurisdictions. So just to backtrack and tie those two together, if your financial institution cannot have a level of transparency and insight into your corporate holdings, where money's coming from and what your source of wealth and funds are, they may make assumptions that you don't want about mm-hmm. your funds being licit or illicit. Right. And it's interesting when you mentioned, so we we were talking about the EU. Do you think that, you know, the US is also changing the way that we regard certain entities as well, right? Like we're not allowing, supposedly not allowing, um, there to be as much cloaking with respect to, for example, LLCs. Do you think that it only works if we have global reach? Or do you think that financial transparency can work if we kind of hit the big countries? So like if the EU and the US agree to more transparency, if we agree to publish information or make information available to financial institutions to help them with uh, you know, determining whether or not something might be legal, is that enough? Or does it have to work in all of the countries for it to work? Honestly, unfortunately, the I don't think we'll ever reach a point where there's comparable transparency or even complementary transparency globally across jurisdictions. There's always, like in the US, where certain states seek to be tax advantaging or corporate registration advantaging in their positioning and their laws and regulations. Same thing happens with countries. I mean, if you pick on, you know, I could pick a number of Pacific jurisdictions, but like if when Vanuatu was the place to go for, for, for tax avoidance, it brought tremendous attention to them, but also brought huge revenues in corporate registrations, right? Mm-hmm. So there will never be an equal playing field, but where it is very important is in the financial crime space. Because remember, in financial institutions around the world, no matter what country to go to, there's a mandate that institutions identify and report suspicious activity, right? And that suspicious activity comes from unanswered questions. Why did someone get this payment? Why was this money wired in? Why did they move money offshore? If they can't answer that question with sufficient knowledge, they're going to report the individuals or entities, and that leads to investigations. That takes mm-hmm. investig- effort, time, and money. It sends professional investigators around the world scurrying to look for crimes. Um, it wastes financial resources. It places customer burdens where they're asked for more and more documentation. But again, I'm drawing a line between what an institution should be able to ascertain and what the public should know. And I think that's very important. For instance, in the FinCEN 
upcoming beneficial ownership registry, it will require permission to access or authorize permission to access only. Meaning the public's not going to be able to go in there and find out the beneficial ownership structures to natural persons of companies that are registered there. It will be by permission from the financial institution that the person banks with. And that permissioning system will be set up. So it's very different than public. Do you think that, and this is, I guess, maybe it sounds cynical, but do you think that people believe that the permission system will work? Because I guess one of the one of the questions that I often get with respect to tax transactions, for example, is you know people will point to the ProPublica leaks or they'll point to something else and they'll say, "See, this information is supposed to be private, but it's not. Like people can get to it." And I'm actually oddly Pollyanna-like. Usually, I actually think that it's remarkable that we don't see more leaks right. from like IRS. I mean, you, you look at, for example, the, the former president's tax information, it did not leak the way you would expect it in a, in a corrupt system, right? Like it was, it was actually still protected. So I, I do tend to actually believe that protections are in place, but, but what do you say to people who are fearful that they might not be? When you look at the systems of secrecy around tax and suspicious financial reporting in the U.S., it's, pretty, it's a pretty amazing structure. I mean, government is highly imperfect. As a person who served for decades in the federal government, I will tell you it's highly imperfect. There are many issues you know, that, could be, that need to be straightened out or done better. But one thing that's amazing is any given time, there's 60,000 investigators who have access to financial bank, to bank secrecy act reporting online to be able to look up information related to individuals that they can search by hundreds of different criteria. Mm-hmm. There have been, uh, you know, likely single digit numbers of leaks in that regard. Right. The FinCEN files leak was was actually a FinCEN analyst, right, who allegedly walked with thousands of suspicious activity reports, but even that was incredibly well contained outside of a few documents leaked publicly. And on the tax side, as someone who was a federal agent but not an IRS CID agent, you'd be amazed at the controls around tax information. As an investigator running a grand jury investigation, I could not subpoena tax. And when we did search warrants involving tax info, it was carefully guarded. Ta- you know, tax data was held very carefully. So what's amazing is the key is to get it to competent investigative resources who treat it under the law with the privacy and security it requires. And then you can determine, you know, then things can be either investigated and closed or investigated and acted upon. You want someone to be the arbiter of suspicious and chargeable and suspicious and now understandable, right? Mm-hmm. You need that person to be you know, trustworthy and, and to, to, to be careful with that information. So I'm a big proponent of the system and having careful guardrails around it, but acknowledging that the public access to that information is very different. It's really fascinating, actually, to hear you talk about this in this way, because I think that a lot of people, including myself, who think about these kinds of registries and disclosures, assume that the purpose is actually to kind of ferret out wrongdoers. But it sounds like a lot of what you're saying is it's actually more efficient for legitimate companies because they are able to explain away or not have to deal with the, you know, the kind of the cloak of suspicion about what's going on. So can you explain a little bit more about why it's a maybe a good thing for legitimate companies? Because again, I think that when I see something like this, my automatic gut is, oh, they're trying to find the bad guys, <laughs> which I understand they are, they are. But it sounds right. like you're saying it's also a really good protection for the good guys. Yeah. So my current company at LexisNexis Resolution, we talk about transparency. We also include inclusion as well, right? Because 
in any system that's going to work for the common good, you have, you know, if you want to create hurdles for the bad, you've also got to make sure you speed or reduce friction, speed access to or reduce friction for the good, right? So the point there is that, you know, we could slow everything down and stop all kinds of bad activities if we just slow everybody down. But think about it in, the, in this space of beneficial ownership registries. In theory, when this goes to, into effect, which could take years, bear in mind, Congress has approved a very small amount of funds. The work in earnest has not really begun on this system yet. But ideally, if Kelly Enterprises was set up and you, you managed a variety of different investment and DDA accounts and all sorts of different holding companies and such, you could permission all of your financial institutions, current and prospective, to access those so that they can understand, oh, this company is the holding company for these three entities. Here's the natural persons that hold ownership stakes. And it could all be answered without iterating with you and without having you again provide documentation and ask new questions. And more importantly, imagine again, when you, when you can't explain something to somebody's satisfaction and there's no governmental registry, mm-hmm. they could trend right towards suspicion and say, there's, I don't see any valid reason for all these non-transparent structures or these complex corporate structures. The idea is not to uh, is to to reduce time spent investigating good and explainable and licit, and then focus and hone in on the bad. The interesting thing is those folks will likely not uh, be eager to permission a broad variety of institutions into their, sure, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, so this is um I think actually kind of a fascinating little bit of a of an aside into your job because I'm really fascinated by the idea of what it is that you do. Are you more proactive right now or are you more reactive? Because I assume that at some point you would be more proactive with your clients and you would say, these are the things that you need to do to avoid these problems. Since they're, the system isn't set up yet, are you still doing that kind of thing or are you more reacting to here's what's going on in the world and here's what you need to be aware of? So it's a little bit of both. You know, so right now I work in a solutions and data environment where we're helping thousands of financial institutions and non-financial corporates with compliance issues, with compliance solutions and data needs. We also maintain data sets, um, for instance, that we, we maintain a, a large data set on small business and, and, and medium-sized business enterprises that has information about their structure, their ownership, their financial history that is also permissioned to allow them to seek credit or arrangements from banks. It's a permissioned environment. All of these things are done to help customers get to information they need and are legally entitled to, or -hmm. to provide information that will assist them. Interestingly, though, if you look at where I was, right, as 20 years in enforcement and regulation, and then nine years in in financial institutions running large anti-money laundering, anti-sanctions programs, each of those, the government side is seeking information that is held in all different places. The, the bank side is also seeking information, right? And then this side, you, you see the troubles of providing information. What we need to do is bring those together again, protecting privacy and facilitating the access to information to show the good, the honest, the good actors, right? Right. That doesn't exclude folks who are seeking tax advantage. So if you're abiding by the law, you may, you may use some of these structures and these locations. Mm-hmm. But they should also be allowed to show that without it becoming public knowledge and, and out there for the public domain necessarily. And it's interesting because I know we like to draw lines and, you know, make people into good actors and bad actors. And I think it depends on, you know, which side you're on sometimes, right. how, you, how you view people, especially when we talk about ways to lower your tax burden, because there are people who feel very strongly that 
you know, it should never go outside of the U.S. And the, the <laughs> people who are like, if it's set up that way, why not take advantage of right. it? So there's a lot of ways of looking at it. How do you, and this might be a complicated question, but especially considering your background in enforcement, how do you decide whether somebody is, and I'm using air quotes, but like good or bad? Like if, if, I, if I am Kelly Enterprises and I come to you and I say, hey, help me. I know, you know, one of the things you mentioned earlier is that obvious, not obvious, I guess, but it's more likely than not that somebody who is using these structures entities for not terrific reasons probably would be less excited about transparency, right? So that might be one way of of noting, but how can you, or do you do some kind of due diligence to figure out if a company is doing things for the right reasons or, or, or do you make those kinds of judgments or do you not? You just say, you know what, here's what we do and you either fit or you don't. How does that work? Well, it's a great question because most of the, the business that I help drive now is focused on compliance tools and data and solutions. So ideally, everyone would use our solutions and data for good. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not always the case. So we maintain a robust credentialing process that looks for illicit actors and others looking to use information that's out there to harm others, non-public info or information on, that's private. And these are mandated by a variety of laws, you know, DPPA, GLBA, and a variety of laws that, that govern use of data. So we do carefully credential. But yeah, just, just to highlight something you said is how do people determine like good actors and bad actors? What's intriguing is that neither federal investigators nor banks nor companies themselves or solutions companies like mine they rarely have the ability to determine if someone is a bad actor themselves. It's a system. So if you think about it, the example I always tell people, and I think this hopefully will resonate with people interested in tax issues, is I always bring the example of wash trading. Like wash trades, I love talking about them because you know in the old days, there was great links you had to go to to see if somebody where you'd monitor the market and say, oh, why were 500 shares of one security sold? And a minute later picked up and maybe it was an off-market price or they may, maybe it cleared through the same broker, all right? Even though the, what's interesting, though, is firms spend a lot of time and money watching for those things and then reporting them under the law, right? They have to report what looks like a wash trade. Okay, Kelly and somebody close to Kelly bought and sold a security nearly contemporaneously. It may have been a wash trade, okay? Mm-hmm. It's only illegal if you don't report it to the IRS. So the arbiter here is the IRS. So right. All, yeah. right? That's and that's the case with all these things. It's down to a judge, it's down to the IRS, it's down to somebody else who you hope is is competent and fair and will look equitably at the situation. But like a bank or a securities firm when it reports a wash trade has no insight into whether it's truly illegal at the end. All they can report is suspicion. And here's where it gets even crazier, Kelly. Think about it today with like, you know, securities available to be traded from a from a mobile device. You can sit at a couch and do a trade on, you know, to buy or to sell on uh, here and then hand it to somebody next to you and have them buy. So you don't lose any value, but you can create the appearance of a loss for tax advantage. Like it's a whole different world out there. Right. You can't tell if that was illicit or coincidental. So it needs to be a system that works together and feeds information up so people can make proper decisions within the boundaries of law. And it's interesting when you talk about um, wash sales and things that are tax related, I do think that's interesting that a lot of folks assume that, well, I shouldn't say a lot of folks, I suspect that a lot of folks assume that these registries, and again, these disclosures are really intended to catch purely financial crimes. Like that's, if you ask most taxpayers, I would guess that that's what they would assume 
you know, that what you're trying to do is keep people from cheating on their taxes, that kind of thing. But when I was going through your bio, you know, especially uh, again with your enforcement background, but also what you're doing now, some of this money is not necessarily just tax avoiders, right? Like it's being used for other kinds of things, like I mentioned in, in your bio, actual crimes. Well, tax crimes are crimes too, but you know, maybe violent crimes, right? So like maybe arms proliferation, that kind of thing. I suspect some dark web stuff. You know, is that something that you and your company are try to explain? Because I, I spend a lot of time talking, if my, my listeners know this, I spend a lot of time talking with IRSCI because I'm fascinated by the work that they do. And one of the things that, especially the, the current chief, um, Jim Lee, it's important to him for people to understand that, yes, cheating on your taxes affects everybody, right? But it's it's beyond that. This, these kinds of crimes also open the doors for other things that they have been involved in, whether it's money laundering, you know, political corruption, gangs, organized violence, that kind of thing, that it, it's a bigger, it's a bigger picture. And I think that they want people to understand that because people sometimes feel very differently about purely financial crimes than they do other kinds of crimes. Do you find that? And if you do, is this something that you talk about with either your clients or with the public? Or is it something that you just assume is kind of, they'll figure it out as they go? Yeah, it's a great question that I have a huge affinity for the efforts of IRS, you know, CID and, and what they do. I, you know, from Jim back to Don Ford before him and Rich Weber, who's, who's a great friend of mine, you know, before him. I have interviewed all three of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, I know, and I know. Yeah. And, and so I, I know so much about what these guys do. And it is controversial because people don't love uh, tax only crime, but it's not just a sort of an overwrought saying when they kind of bring up some of our most famous gangsters were caught with tax law. This is what I know from going through this, Kelly, is that having investigated thousands of human traffickers, sanctions evaders, drug traffickers, corrupt politicians and others, what is interesting is tax avoidance and money laundering that involves or uh, invokes tax avoidance, tax uh, evasion. They often run with money laundering from all of those sources that I mentioned. People who know how to move money to their financial advantage do it in every way they can. It'll be tax. It could be proceeds from fraud. As they launder, they're not only committing further tax crime, but they're, they're making money by involving others. There's bribery aspects. Financial crime is not just one thing, right? If you think about it, the, the entity that is using child labor to make some goods overseas is going to bribe customs inspectors, and they're going to evade tax. They're going to underprice you know, and underpay tariffs and, and fees. They're going to dilute the market for other goods. And think about that, right? That's one thing that's rarely talked about. Even if it's a tax evasion crime from any predicate that you want to know about, you're disadvantaging other businesses. And today, mm -hmm. as you look around at the amount of fraud going on in public benefit programs, like the last thing businesses can do if they're trying to actually compete is be disadvantaged by a competitor who doesn't pay their taxes, who doesn't declare their workers, right? Who takes loans, workers that don't exist. So I, it's just rarely a, a one thing. And I think IRSCI is amazing in that they they often work at the confluence of so many different crimes. And remember, as I mentioned before, those guys are the key custodians of that critical tax data. In all the cases I work with IRSCI, they are the ones who hold that data and is held you know, in, in tremendous security and confidence. So they're the ones that look and say, is there additionally a tax crime, et cetera? So a lot of respect for that. Rarely do you find someone who's just committed a tax crime. It often runs with other crimes. Right. So as we kind of move forward in this possibly new world, right, 
with the hopefully the the consequences that some of those crimes are mitigated or eliminated. I know you mentioned earlier in the program that you didn't expect this to happen quickly. What do you see that's next kind of on the horizon? Like, obviously, this is something that we're going to have to work through in terms of setting up processes and that kind of thing. But for now, what what should companies be on the lookout for or kind of what comes next? What should advisors know or what should they be on the lookout for as there are, again, I think, increased clamor for transparency, even if it's taking a while? Yeah. I think that the rollout of U.S. you know registries will take years, but in the meantime, this that, that clamor you mentioned, the increased desire politically, from a regulatory perspective, and even from institutions themselves, is going to drive increased demands for transparency data. And I'll give you an example. It's been a slow, like a slowly uh, increasing boil of of attention to this issue, and the United States has finally come to realize that we are a jurisdiction where we are incredibly non-transparent. You know, right. <laughs> Financial Action Task Force has been saying this for decades, right? Oh, oh, yeah. I li- I'm in the Northeast, as we were discussing before I got on, and uh, we have Delaware is is a yep. pretty. I'm not suggesting that being in Delaware is a bad thing, but I'm saying that there is a lot of concern about the level of transparency Correct. available in Delaware, and and that's something that we deal with, I think, in Pennsylvania a lot. So yeah, I agree that there are not all jurisdictions in the U.S. are created equal. No. And if you look at that, there are some very bad outcomes from that. And I'll just give you one example of a case. If your listeners want to look at something amazing, if you look at the Panama Papers and the firm involved, Masek Fonseca, there is a fantastic story. It's not fantastic, unbelievably fantastic. It's fantastic. It's amazing. Involving an entity, uh, I believe it was MF Holdings out of Nevada, which was finally proven to be an affiliate of Masek Fonseca's law firm. But they fought that in court for years, and they fought it against individuals from a, a number of funds that held sovereign wealth from Argentina, which, as you know, is one of the more speculative and risky investments in sovereign wealth around the world. The Argentinian government has defaulted a number of times on their debt. Mm-hmm. But right around the time of the Panama Papers, this court case brought to bear litigation against principles of the Argentine government, including Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner and her dead husband, who was also president, and their cabinets, was claiming that they had ownership interests in companies in Nevada that held significant amounts of undeclared and illicit wealth. That's important because eventually those cases were settled. And interestingly, Argentina paid their debt to those individuals that were trying to get access to their financial information. But that in itself is a very big item of concern. Mm-hmm. The reason is, if you can bring pressure on a politician because of non-transparency, that itself is a mechanism which may bring about undesired actions. Meaning, think about it. Um, if there's no transparency, even to the financial institutions or the government, to show why you had these entities and who owns them, then simply litigating might actually bring significant enough uh, attention, negative attention to a politician to affect their actions. So in this case, non-transparency being litigated against is actually a risk itself, mm-hmm. Right. If you're a, a mayor of a big city and you've inherited a large amount of money from a relative, but you want to keep that private for whatever reason, the threat of exposing that might actually be a mechanism to cause a politician to act the way you want. So right. it, non-transparency feeds itself with bad outcomes. But on the flip side of that, transparency must respect privacy and it must be done in a way that does not blow destroy everyone's ability to have privacy. And do you think that there will be, and again, I know we've talked about the fact that, you know, timelines, you can't predict, 
Do you think that in the U.S. that we will reach a resolution? I think you alluded to you didn't think it was going to be anytime soon. Do you think it's a matter of five years or 10 years or where do you think that goes? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think we're looking at a timeline of probably five years and onward based on past technological build by the government. Mm-hmm. And bear in mind, there's an important step here. This repository is simply going to be a collection with permissioned access to financial institutions and others. It does not even have a validation component. So meaning the government is not going to take the info and then go out and investigate and make sure it's true. It's simply to solve what right now is a huge burden of of, of financial institutions everywhere having to collect this ownership data. So right now, I believe this will go forward because it's in the interest of the government, of the states, of of the banks to do this for efficiency, because right now everybody's collecting it separately on different standards. But it's not going to solve the problem because it's still going to be, you tell the government what you want and they will publish it. They will hold it. So it's not going to be validated to get into that data set. So I think it'll be a while and it will help a lot with efficiency. For licit, for good entities, this should significantly speed your ability to get accounts and open up relationships with all kinds of different entities. So, you know, a large corporation might have hundreds of bank accounts or thousands, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's very much in their interest to get this done right. And I think it will happen, but it'll take years. Well, that's fascinating. Thank you so much. I think that you've talked about a lot of things, which I definitely know I didn't know. And I think my listeners are really find interesting as we kind of watch this move forward. So thank you again for for being here. If our listeners wanted to find you or your company and you wanted to be found either on social media or on the web, where would you send them? I have a profile on LinkedIn. I also have on our LexisNexis Risk Solutions page, there is, uh, you can search for my last name, Wager, W-A-G-E-R on there, and you'll find a contact page where you can reach out to our company through that channel. Terrific. And I'll be sure to put those links in our show notes for the listeners. Thank you again for being here. I really appreciate it. It was great. Thanks, Kelly. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be. The number of words in the tax code is estimated to be 1 million, about the same length as the entire Harry Potter series. Add in IRS regs, rev rulings, and case law, and it can be a lot. We all need a little help to sort it out. Each week on the Tax Girl podcast, I talk to the best in the business. And these aren't crazy technical dives. They're interesting and easy to digest looks at topics that matter to you. It's all that you need to stay ahead on the most important tax issues. You can subscribe to the podcast for free on taxgirl.com because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't be.